Hey everyone, I know this episode might seem a bit off topic. This is a podcast where I primarily focus on religion, atheism, that sort of thing. But long-time listeners will know every once in a while I like to venture outside the usual wheelhouse of the show. And speaking of off-topic content, earlier this week I sat down and recorded a nearly two-hour-long unscripted episode where I go over or react to some new abuse or assault allegations leveled at Marilyn Manson. I began the editing process, and about a quarter of the way in, I thought, who the hell wants to listen to me talk about Marilyn Manson for two hours? And I just stopped. Maybe I'll still release it at some point, I don't know. But one thing that was pretty wild is that one of the new accusers is actually a Game of Thrones actress. Or was a Game of Thrones actress, past tense. As a GOT fan, or former GOT fan, I still lament the, uh, the disastrous way that series ended. But anyway, at first I'm thinking a Game of Thrones actress? If it was a member of the main cast, like Maisie Williams or Sophie Turner, we'd probably be hearing more about it. So I was like, maybe it's someone who had a bit part or something like that. And it turns out it was the actress who played Roz. I think that's the uh, character's name. She was the redhead who worked in the brothel in Winterfell. Uh, I think we see her in the first episode in Bed with Tyrion. And uh, she was on the show for three seasons until her character eventually gets killed by Joffrey. Spoiler alert. So, not really a bit part. That was a pretty solid recurring role. Uh, to the point where if you had watched Game of Thrones back in the day regularly, you definitely would have known who Roz was. And I keep thinking of Roz from Frasier for some reason. Uh, but anyway, the actress's name is Esme Bianco, which in turn reminds me of the Bianco and Sons cheese and garlic sausages I used to eat back before I decided the phase animal products out of my diet. And those things tasted pretty damn good, you know, the cheese would get all melty in the middle and everything. But between concern for the animals and concern for my health, I just walk by them now in the supermarket. And whenever I find myself feeling tempted by something like that, I try to remind myself, literally, of how the sausage is made. Only a couple of minutes in, I'm already all over the place. My apologies. Uh, but Esme Bianco, no relation to the sausage people. At least I don't think. Um, I shouldn't be laughing. This is kind of heavy stuff. She claims that she was in an abusive relationship with Manson and that at one point he supposedly deprived her of food for four days, feeding her booze and drugs instead. She says he tied her up and whipped her, electrocuted her, and that he even blacked out the window so she'd lose sense of time. And in that episode, I at least temporarily scrapped. I go a lot deeper into this, but I'm just trying to give a brief synopsis since this isn't the main topic of today's show. But she's actually attempting to sue Manson, and Manson's lawyer, Howard King, said the following in a statement obtained by People Magazine. And full disclosure, People Magazine is where I first read about this new round of allegations. Well, actually, no. Correction. I think I first learned about them through a Huffington Post notification, and that led me to the uh, People magazine article. But anyway, so his attorney said, 
To be clear, this suit was only filed after my client refused to be shaken down by Miss Bianco and her lawyer and give in to their outrageous financial demands based on conduct that simply never occurred. King wrote, We will vigorously contest these allegations in court and are confident we will prevail. So, pretty much what you'd expect a lawyer to say in defense of their client, so I'm not sure that really tells us much in regard to what actually did or didn't happen. Uh, and then another accuser by the name of Ashley Morgan Smithleen came forward. Smithleen or Smithline? Smithline sounds like a company that delivers office supplies. Uh, I shouldn't be joking. Uh, serious stuff. And this is from People Also. Over the course of two years, Smithleen says that along with being sexually assaulted by the rock star countless times, Manson, 52, bit her, whipped her, cut her with a swastika emblazoned knife, and shoved his fist in her mouth during sex. If you put bread on his fist, would it be a literal knuckle sandwich? I know, I know, I'm trying, but on a, on a serious note, being sincere, uh, sexual assault is actually something I feel very strongly about. So, I mean, I know I have a tendency to be kind of inappropriate and joke around. Uh, don't take that as a reflection of how I actually feel about uh, this topic. But yeah, that, I mean, who that does seem like a weird power play thing. No matter how kinky you are, who the hell tries to force their entire fist into someone's mouth during, uh, you know, coitus or whatever. But the article continues saying that he also forced her to do a blood pact and that she was locked in what he called, in quotes, the bad girl's room, a glass soundproof room, whenever she also, in quotes, pissed him off. And as troubling as those allegations are, here I'm going to joke again, I think the thing that made me cringe the most was the phrase, bad girl's room. And that's if you know the accusations are true. So like, come on, Manson, I love your lyrics. Can't you come up with something less corny than the bad girl's room? Maybe pain TARDIS, you get a little Doctor Who, a little Hellraiser, or hyperbolic time chamber. That's actually, uh, that's Dragon Ball Z. But continues, it wasn't his macabre makeup or ghoulish persona that drew her in. She says, instead, he lured me in with this endless intelligence. He seemed brilliant, and I still think he is, she says. We talked about Nabokov and Tolstoy and foreign films, and not in a pretentious first year of film school way, in a way of really appreciating art and literature. And I've always found Manson to be highly intelligent, too. It's one of the things I've always admired about him. And I'd always hoped or assumed that he was the kind of person that was able to compartmentalize, that he was able to express his inner darkness through his art and his music, and then be a down-to-earth, respectful person in his everyday life and in his dealings with other people. And that was the feeling I got watching him in interviews over the years and that kind of thing. But if he is some kind of serial abuser behind the scenes, I obviously don't condone that behavior, to say the least. And you can argue that things like whipping and biting can sometimes be consensual, which is true depending on what you're into as a couple and how far you like to take things in the bedroom. But if you're whipping or biting or cutting someone and they're clearly not into it and you're causing them unwanted pain and distress, that's abuse. Uh, I wasn't there, so I don't know exactly 
how things went down, how much of what transpired was consensual and how much wasn't. But there seems to be an emerging pattern with multiple women making similar allegations. And locking people up against their will, that's not only cruel and abusive, but I imagine legally it also constitutes false imprisonment. I was almost going to say kidnapping, but I think kidnapping is moving someone without their consent, and false imprisonment is holding or detaining someone in one place without their consent or against their will. And uh, speaking of that, I think one of the women... Uh, actually accused Manson of human trafficking, or that's mentioned in the lawsuit. Yeah, so I'm just scrolling through that People magazine article, and yeah, so it says, Bianco's allegations of human trafficking rely on the fact that Bianco was flown out for, quote-unquote, promises of work, and instead was faced with, also in quotes, violent sexual acts to which he did not consent. And so a few paragraphs above that, you know, it mentions how it began as a consensual relationship. Uh, let's see, then it says in April 2011, Bianco claims that Manson secured her a visa to work on his film, Phantasmagoria. And I remember the buzz about that. Um, I, I believe it was supposed to be a movie about Lewis Carroll, but I don't know if it ever got finished, if it was ever released. Anyway, and that she moved in with him at the time. Well, there she went through, in quotes, constant abuse and was held against her will, as he also, in quotes, threatened to interfere with her visa process. On one occasion, Mr. Warner chased Bianco around the apartment with an axe, smashing holes in the walls. And that just reminded me of Pink Floyd's The Wall, one of my favorite movies, also one of my favorite albums. Uh, what's the song? I think it's one of my turns. Run to the bedroom in the suitcase on the left, you'll find my favorite axe. Yeah, that was unnecessary. What's with me making all these weird mental connections tonight? Uh, but continues on another occasion, Mr. Warner cut Miss Bianco with a Nazi knife during sex. I like the alliteration. Not big on Nazis, to say the least, but Nazi knife has a certain ring. Uh, cut her with a, with a Nazi knife during sex without her consent and photographed the cuts on her body, the lawsuit reads. He then posted the photos online without her consent. And then earlier in the article, it mentions one of them. I don't know if it's Smith Lean or Bianco, but uh, they claim Manson whipped them with a whip that he, he whipped them with a whip. Well, I guess in fairness to myself, you can technically whip someone with something other than a whip. Uh, but, you know, he claimed that the whip had once belonged to a Nazi or that it was a piece of Nazi memorabilia or something like that. Yeah, so it says that he tied her to a prayer kneeler and beat her with a whip that Mr. Warner said was utilized by the Nazis. He also electrocuted her. Yeah, and so I don't know how that went down, if these allegations are true. Uh, so I don't, I mean, that could be horrifying. You know, I don't know if she agreed to be tied up or if he tied her up against her will, and let's say she did agree to be tied up, but then maybe he electrocutes her, you know, without any warning, without her consent, or there's nothing she can do because she's tied up. <sighs> yeah, that would definitely constitute abuse. And the Nazi thing, that's always weird. I believe Manson was influenced by David Bowie. I'm a Bowie fan too. 
And Bowie did seem to have an interest in or fascination with Nazi occultism. In fairness to Bowie, I think it was probably more of an extension of his fascination with the occult in general than any kind of approval or interest in fascism or anti-Semitism. And maybe this speaks to that in a way, because strangely enough, Bowie simultaneously also had a very deep interest in Jewish mysticism, specifically the Kabbalah. He has a number of songs that have occult references. In his song Quicksand, he mentions Himmler by name, as well as 19th century occultist Aleister Crowley, who I did a whole documentary episode on. Uh, yeah, the lyrics are... I'm closer to the golden dawn immersed in Crowley's uniform of imagery. I'm living in a silent film portraying Himmler's sacred realm of dream reality. And then in his song Station to Station, he sings Here We Are, One Magical Movement from Kether to Malkuth. And I think the Hebrew pronunciation is something like Malhut or something like that. Um, a clear allusion to the Hebrew tree of life. And it should probably also be mentioned that I think some of Bowie's interest in Nazism coincided with a period in his life, the mid-1970s, where he was barely eating and fueling himself instead with massive amounts of coke and amphetamines. I believe his meal of choice around this time was milk, red peppers, and cocaine. Uh, in his own words... And this is from a 1993 interview with NME, which I think is a new Musical Express magazine. My interest in the Nazis was the fact they supposedly came to England before the war to find the Holy Grail at Glastonbury. The idea that it was about putting Jews in concentration camps and the complete oppression of different races completely evaded my extraordinary fucked up nature at that particular time. And just to try to give a whole picture, I believe he was at one point uh, stopped at an Eastern European border. Uh, he had been basically pinched for transporting Nazi memorabilia. And he had also you know, described his thin white Duke character as a very Aryan fascist type. But at the end of the day, I don't think Bowie was actually racist or anti-Semitic. I think he was more of an eccentric seeker, so to speak, who went through, you know, a number of different phases. But there's probably also one more Bowie song I should mention. Uh, later, you know, in the 80s, I think, what was it, around 83 or something? Uh, his version of China Girl came out. And I say his version because he actually wrote China Girl with Iggy Pop, I believe. I also, I really dig Iggy Pop too, Iggy and the Stooges especially. Nah, a lot of Iggy solo stuff is pretty damn awesome too. But uh, yeah, he wrote China Girl with Iggy Pop and Iggy released his version on a solo album previously. And as politically incorrect as that title now is, China Girl, I actually love that song. There's just something really kind of powerful and romantic about it. There's just something about that melody and everything that I really love. But of course it does contain those kind of ominous lyrics. There's the lines, And how's it go? I stumble into town just like a sacred cow. Visions of swastikas in my head and plans for everyone. I think that's what it is. So it's kind of like, whoa, pretty uh, heavy or provocative lyrics for what some might deem a pop song. 
And I don't think I've ever told anyone this before, but sometimes I like to jokingly pretend that he's saying pot stickers instead of swastikas. Would pot stickers be more or less offensive? I don't know. But, uh, you know, with my New England accent, if I really kind of dial it up, it's like a, a pretty good rhyme. Swastikas, pot stickers. Pot stickers. Pot stickers, swastikas. Visions of pot stickers in my head. That was weird. But uh, I've heard some people say, you know, in their analysis of the song, that's actually a kind of criticism of Western chauvinism and this kind of fetishization of Asia. And that's kind of the feeling I got, I think, intuitively, even when I was, you know, a kid listening to it, that um, there was some kind of message there about this relationship between the West and the East and uh, the Western attitude towards the East. And to that point, there's also the lines, I'll give you television, I'll give you eyes of blue. So yeah, I think there is something to that analysis. And I'm trying to resist the temptation to go off on another digression, but I don't know if I'll ever find myself talking about Iggy Pop again on the show. And it's funny how everything's kind of connected in a way. Uh, you guys are probably sick of hearing me talk about, you know, how I'm a huge Doors fan and all that. Um, and it's it's weird because there is a Jim Morrison Iggy Pop connection. And even though on the surface, you know, they definitely have some similarities. Uh, they're both lead singers who are, you know, kind of wild and push the envelope. Um, but in a way, I never used to connect those two figures in my head because I connected Jim with the 60s. Of course, I think L.A. Woman, The Doors' last album, or their last album with Jim anyway. I think that, uh, that came out in 71, I believe. Yeah, I think L.A. Woman came out in January of 71, and Jim passed away in July of 71, I think. So his musical career did just barely extend into the, uh, the 70s. Technically, An American Prayer was released in the 70s, too, but that was a posthumously released uh, spoken word album. I think it was, you know, in between 69 and 70, Jim recorded a bunch of his poetry. And then the remaining doors, you know, in the 70s at some point, put uh, music behind his poetry. And uh, yeah, they released the, um, the resulting project as an American Prayer. And I think American Prayer was what Jim entitled that uh, body of poetry as well. I don't know what Jim would have thought about the way the um, the Doors put it together or, you know, the backing music, etc. But I think it kicks ass. I absolutely uh, love an American Prayer. And even though I'm a skeptic, a non-believer, I think we all need things that kind of put us in a quote-unquote transcendent headspace, you know what I mean? Kind of allow us to transcend our normal mode of consciousness. Um, and poetry does that for me. And uh, Jim Morrison's poetry is like, it's, you know, I fell in love with Jim's poetry as a teenager, and it still really has an effect on me. Uh, like this stuff from uh, An American Prayer. Do you know the warm progress under the stars? Do you know we exist? Have you forgotten the keys to the kingdom? Have you been born yet and are you alive? Let's reinvent the gods, all the myths of the ages. Celebrate symbols from deep elder forests. 
Have you forgotten the lessons of the ancient war? We need great golden copulations. <laughs> Our fathers are cackling in trees of the forest. Our mother is dead in the sea. Uh, just wild stuff. Do you know we are ruled by TV? The moon is a dry blood beast. <laughs> um, and even mentions atheists. O oh, great creator of being, grant us one more hour to perform our art and perfect our lives. The moths and atheists are doubly divine in dying. We live, we die, and death not ends it. Uh, well, as an atheist, agnostic atheist, I might argue with that, but <laughs> I still like where it takes me. Um, but yeah, just uh, powerful stuff. And there's something, you know, like a lot of poetry is kind of dry and kind of inaccessible, but there's something kind of really powerful and pagan uh, about Jim Morrison's poetry. It really taps into something. I don't know. And I don't know if pagan's necessarily the right word, but it is in a way. Um, there's something kind of, um, kind of ancient and timeless about it. Uh, and there's a profundity there and a kind of, um, maybe a kind of Dionysian vitality that makes the poetry so kind of um, infectious. I don't know. But what the hell was I talking about? Oh yeah, the Jim Morrison Iggy Pop connection. So even though L.A. Woman was technically released in the 70s, I still associate Jim with the 60s. And when I think Iggy Pop, I think punk, you know? But they did obviously have some stuff in common. They were both lead singers, known for kind of pushing the envelope and being wild, you know? And um, even though I don't think punk when I think of Jim and the Doors, some people have suggested that Jim may have helped pave the way for punk with how kind of wild, you know, he was on stage, how rebellious, uh, how he pushed the envelope, that kind of thing. And I noticed myself using the past tense. They did have, you know, things. I, I guess I should use the present tense. Uh, Iggy's still alive as far as I know. Jim obviously passed uh, back in 71. But one's dead, one's alive. I don't know which tense to go with. Maybe present tense is all right. Am I really sidelining the show to police my own grammar? Uh, anyway, uh, I read this wild book years and years ago called Wonderland Avenue. And um, Iggy Pop is, is in it. Uh, it's an autobiography by, um, or an autobiographical work by Danny Sugarman who also was uh, the co-author of the book uh, No One Here Gets Out Alive. This Jim Morrison biography that I've read multiple times over the years that as a teenager really helped spark this lifelong interest and admiration I have for Jim Morrison as an individual and for The Doors as a whole. And it was actually Jim Morrison who got Danny Sugarman into writing when Sugarman was a teenager, he met Morrison, and Morrison took him under his wing and inspired him to become a, a writer, a music critic. Uh, pretty wild stuff. And so Sugarman would end up befriending Iggy Pop. And Iggy talked about how, you know, I think he started out as a drummer, but he credited Jim Morrison for, you know, making him want to get out from behind the drum set and actually, you know, become a lead singer. 
But the book is so wild because it focuses on this period in Sugarman's life after Jim died, where he just became hooked on drugs, specifically heroin, and his life just fell apart. And it's called Wonderland Avenue because I think in some capacity, Sugarman was working for The Doors after Jim died. And Ray Manzarek, the organist for The Doors, who I think it's, you know, you could argue was the closest to Jim, the uh, surviving members, uh, Robbie Krieger and John Densmore, might take some offense at that. But I think it probably is safe to say that Ray Manzarek probably did intellectually understand Jim the most, or they were very close in that way. And um, Manzarek, I would say, continued to really be kind of uh, Jim's torchbearer after Jim passed. Um, the Doors did release a couple of, uh, of albums after Jim died, which to this day I still haven't listened to just because it feels wrong. But anyway, so... After Jim's death, uh, Danny Sugarman was working for The Doors, and Ray Manzarek gave him basically a company card, a credit card with The Doors logo on it or whatever, and he set Sugarman up in a house on Wonderland Avenue, which I think is in Laurel Canyon, I think. But Sugarman proceeded to get lost in this downward spiral of hard drug addiction, heroin, and he ended up abusing his credit card privileges, I believe, uh, doing whatever he could to get his hands on more money to buy drugs. And uh, yeah, as an admirer of Jim Morrison, you know, a big Jim Morrison fan, yeah, this was really, you know, just kind of sleazy vibes, man, you know. But um, the love of Jim Morrison's life was Pamela Corson. And uh, after Jim died... Um, she was hooked on smack, Sugarman was hooked on smack, and they ended up having sex. And I think, you know, eventually Pamela Corson ended up uh, dying too. I forget if it was a drug overdose. But I remember, yeah, that was, reading that was kind of rough, you know, because you had um, this kid that Jim Morrison took under his wing, and Jim Morrison's, you know, soulmate um, basically uh, hooking up. Yeah, but there's just some really wild stories in there. Like there's one where I think um, Sugarman was straight uh, and there was a, um, a heroin dealer who happened to be gay. And, uh, you know, Sugarman found himself in this position where he really need, you know, he really needed his drugs, uh, but he didn't have any money or anything. So they agreed that um, this gay gentleman who was in the... Uh, the heroin business, uh, would give him a blowjob. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, very weird. Uh, he was so hard up for drugs that um, he let the dealer blow him in exchange for some smack. And I feel like this might be kind of a weird or, you know, uneven deal. Because, like, if I had something that was valuable that someone really wanted, I'm like, all right, you can have it if you let me perform oral sex on you. So it's like the other person kind of gets the best of both worlds. They get the, uh, the free drugs and the oral sex. <laughs> oh, no. This show has officially gone off the rails. But who cares? At this point, let's just, you know, enjoy the uh, runaway train ride and see where it takes us. But, uh, yeah, Iggy Pop... 
So as I already mentioned, uh, Sugarman and Iggy Pop become friends. And during this kind of wild, you know, train wreck of a time where uh, Danny Sugarman is just, his life is out of control. He's addicted to heroin. You know, um, Iggy Pop would kind of come and go. Um, and sometimes I guess he'd hang out with, uh, he either had friends that were transgender or they may have been people who were just, you know, kind of transvestites, um, men who enjoyed dressing as women, but weren't necessarily transgender, I forget, but he would go off with these friends. And so sometimes out of the blue, all of a sudden, you know, Iggy Pop would show up at, uh, at the, uh, house or whatever, the Doors house where Sugarman was staying and, uh, he'd be dressed like a woman and wearing makeup. And then, you know, other times, uh, He'd just go back to being regular Iggy or whatever, whatever baseline Iggy was. Yeah, but Wonderland Avenue, yeah, definitely a wild book. And uh, unfortunately, somewhere along the line, I actually managed to lose my paperback version. And I ordered a used uh, hardcover edition off of Amazon, but when it arrived, it was a little more grody and skanked out than I expected. But I just noticed that... Uh, Amazon actually has uh, brand new paperback versions available again, so I might repurchase that book pretty soon. But where the hell was I before that long digression? I didn't plan on talking about Bowie and Jim Morrison and Iggy Pop. Oh yeah, but I was talking about uh, Marilyn Manson and his, uh, his Nazi memorabilia and how that reminded me of um, you know the situation with Bowie. So yeah, Manson, I've never heard any accusations of anti-Semitism or anything like that against him, but bringing a swastika emblazoned knife into the bedroom or bragging to your significant other that the whip you're using on them was once, you know, owned by a Nazi or whatever, uh, definitely not my scene, man. And once again, context matters. I don't know how much of this was consensual. Imagine if things uh, reach a point where they're no longer consensual in the bedroom and someone starts whipping you with, uh, you know, with a piece of Nazi memorabilia. Um, and once again, I don't know if that's exactly how it went down, but yeah, the, the whole thing's crazy. But I think with Manson, just going by what I know about him, uh, I think it might have more to do with a fascination with the dark side than it does with anti-Semitism. Uh, but me personally, I wouldn't feel comfortable owning any Nazi memorabilia. Maybe if it was like a helmet or a knife your grandpappy, you know, grabbed off of a Nazi he killed or something. But speaking of Nazi paraphernalia, a horrible way to start anything. Definitely an unfortunate segue. But uh, I have to say, one of my favorite movies of all time is An American Werewolf in London. And there's a scene in that movie that scared the crap out of me as a kid. Well, there's a few scenes like that in that movie. Uh, but it's the scene where the main character, David, I believe, is dreaming. And you don't know it's a dream at first, I think. Uh, you know, but he's chilling with his family. Mom's making dinner. Dad's reading the paper or watching TV or something. The kids are playing on the carpet. And suddenly there's a knock at the door. And so the father gets up to answer it, and a group of, like, mutant, Nazi, werewolf, demon things bust in and slaughter the whole family. They're dressed in what look like German military uniforms, but there's definitely a Nazi vibe. 
and their faces, like I think I was implying, are really demonic, almost like they're mutants or werewolves caught in mid-transformation or something. And the practical effects were so good in that movie that as a kid, they were pretty damn convincing. And I have this thing where I've developed a kind of fascination or respect or affection for the movies that really scared the crap out of me as a kid. And longtime listeners will know this especially applies to The Exorcist. But American Werewolf in London is right up there too. And I bring this up because... Every now and then I'll let myself buy a little collectible or tchotchke. I uh, usually just end up throwing them in a cardboard box in, uh, in my closet. But I noticed that a company called NECA Toys is releasing something they're calling an American Werewolf in London Ultimate Nightmare Demon. <laughs> it's actually a figure of one of those crazy mutant demon werewolf soldier guys. I think it comes with like four different heads instead of four different, you know, having to buy four different demon soldiers. And so, yeah, it's a pre-order, so you wouldn't even have to pay for it for months. And it was only like 30 bucks. That was my justification to myself. And so, yeah, I pre-ordered it. And I'm thinking like, is this going to be like having a little Nazi demon man in my house? Am I comfortable with this? But then I'm like, well, it doesn't appear to have any Nazi insignias. And after all, John Landis, the director himself, is Jewish. So, hey, you know. And I just saw this morning that they're also releasing the actual Kessler Wolf. the uh, That terrifying, <laughs> demonic wolf thing that David turns into. And so I pre-ordered that, too. And that was like 30-something bucks, too. That I might display. I have, like, a very small tchotchke display. I have a uh, statue of Pazuzu that a friend of mine gave me. I have a Hellraiser uh, puzzle cube, but it's actually a metal tin where I store little like dongles and stuff I don't want to get lost. And then of course my Krampus mug. Uh, so I'll probably display it with that stuff. Yeah. What has my life come to? But anyway, moving on, I think those disturbing Manson updates, you know, might help set the tone for what's coming, because this could possibly be the darkest episode I've ever done. We're going to be venturing into true crime territory. And it's funny, as much as I'm drawn to morbid stuff like horror movies, uh, dark fiction like the works of H.P. Lovecraft, dark music like that of Marilyn Manson, etc., I find true crime, real-life stories of serial killers, etc., especially if it involves, you know, people harming children or animals, to just be really disturbing and depressing. But back in the day, I used to be a real documentary junkie. I especially liked documentaries on ancient history, religion, that kind of thing. But sometimes I would find myself watching these true crime documentary series like uh, Investigative Reports with Bill Curtis on A&E or whatever. And anyone remember, um, if you're old enough, how like 20 years ago or so it seemed like everything was narrated by Bill Curtis at one point? Um, but there were a couple of cases that just really stuck with me because of how disturbing they were. 
And I recently mentioned how I had binge-watched season one of the popular anime Attack on Titan. And this is what happens when you don't get married. You end up watching cartoons and collecting werewolves. But anyway, self-deprecating humor. Uh, since then, I've gone on to binge-watch the rest of the series. So I'm now all caught up and waiting for the second half of season four, the final season, to drop. But in a certain episode, I think it's uh, specifically episode 15 of season one, they mention in the same breath the names of the two different killers whose cases disturbed me so much back in the day, so pretty wild. And so for those who aren't familiar, the basic premise of Attack on Titan is that there's this relatively small human civilization living within or behind a series of concentric walls, and as far as they know, they're all that's left of humanity. And I believe there's also a kind of class structure based on which wall you live behind. The ones living behind the outermost wall are seen as the most expendable, while the aristocracy and the elite live within the innermost circle. Or so I think, something to that effect. And so I believe within the story, people know that titans exist, but there's been a hundred years of relative peace without any titans managing to get inside the walls. And then one day the shit hits the fan and a couple of exceptionally large and powerful titans who basically look like giant skinless humans suddenly appear and breach the walls and then smaller titans come pouring in behind them and begin devouring the human inhabitants. And so there's basically two types of titans. There's the ones that possess human intelligence, like the ones that attack the walls. I could elaborate more on the nature of these titans, but I don't want to give too much away. And then there's others, usually smaller and much greater in number, who are essentially mindless and capable of being reasoned with and driven only by an instinctual desire to consume human flesh, which is kind of what makes them so damn creepy and terrifying. And so given the context, I think it makes sense that there would be little Easter eggs or fleeting references to actual real-world cannibals, and I probably should have mentioned that earlier. Those two cases that really stuck with me that I keep alluding to, they both concern men who were not only serial killers, as if that wasn't bad enough, but who were also cannibals to boot. For some reason, the way I just said boot made me feel really Canadian. Anyway, uh, I I'm getting there. Bear with me. So in episode 15, there's a female character, Hanji, I believe. Uh, what a nerd I am. Who's a scientist of sorts who gets a little too excited or enthusiastic when it comes to researching Titans. And she kind of provides some, you know, comic relief in that sense. But she has a couple of smaller titans pinned to the ground by ropes and large nails driven through their flesh. And she's trying to think of what name she should give them. And there's a couple of soldiers standing nearby. And this brief exchange ensues. We gotta go through this again? Her naming scheme is so weird. Yeah. What did she end up going with last time? It was Chikatilo and Albert. And so I presume it's gotta be Andre Chikatilo and Albert Fish two notorious cannibal serial killers. And so they're the two whose stories really disturbed me back in the day and that have just kind of stuck with me over the years. Now, other than the fact that they were both absolute monsters who killed and cannibalized other human beings, these guys have nothing to do with each other. These are two separate cases. 
But before we take a closer look at those two, I wanted to briefly acknowledge that in the same scene, the Hanji character goes on to mention another cannibal serial killer, and that's where she gets the names for her two new test subjects. In honor of the cannibal tribe's notorious leader, I'm going to christen you beauties accordingly. You'll be Sani. You are Bean. No need to fret, though. I'm not going to publicly disembowel you or burn you at the stake. Pleasure to meet you, Sonny. Likewise, Bean. And so I have to admit, to my embarrassment, as much as I love history, I had no idea what she was referencing. And so I quickly googled Sonny and Bean and discovered that, um, there was this legendary or pseudo-historical, I think the jury's still out, cannibal clan leader in 16th century Scotland by the name of Sonny Bean. And I know there's a whole bunch of people with sticks up their butts who don't like when podcasters, you know, resort to uh, Wikipedia. If this was one of my official documentary episodes, I'd do a lot more digging, but we're just having kind of fun and riffing on serial killers here. So I'm gonna read from Wikipedia. Alexander, quote-unquote, Sonny Bean, was said to be the head of a 45-member clan in Scotland in the 16th century that murdered and cannibalized over a thousand people in the span of 25 years. According to legend, Bean and his clan members would eventually be caught by a search party sent by King James VI and were executed for their heinous crimes. The story appeared in the Newgate Calendar, a crime catalogue of Newgate Prison in London. The legend lacks sufficient evidence to be deemed true by historians, and there is debate as to why the legend would have been fictionalized. Nevertheless, the myth of Sonny Bean has passed into local folklore and has become a part of the Edinburgh tourism circuit. According to the Newgate Calendar, a tabloid publication from the 18th and 19th centuries, Alexander Bean was born in East Lothian, I think it is, during the 16th century. His father was a ditch digger and hedge trimmer, and Bean tried to take up the family trade, but quickly realized that he was not fit for the work. He left home with an allegedly vicious woman named Black Agnes Douglas, who apparently shared his inclinations and was accused of being a witch. After some robbing and the cannibalization of one of their victims, the couple ended up at Coastal Cave in Benane Head, I think, between Gervin or Gavan and Ballantrae, all these Scottish place names. The cave was 200 yards deep, and the entrance was blocked by water during high tide, so the couple were able to live there undiscovered for some 25 years. Sonny and Agnes produced eight sons, six daughters, 18 grandsons, and 14 granddaughters. Various grandchildren were products of incest between their children. Lacking the inclination for regular labor, the Bean clan thrived by laying careful ambushes at night to rob and murder individuals or small groups. The clan brought the bodies back to their cave where the corpses were dismembered and eaten. They pickled the leftovers in barrels. The clan 
then discarded body parts, which would sometimes wash up on nearby beaches. This strategy was used to help conceal their crimes and lead villagers to believe that it was animals who were attacking travelers. The body parts and disappearances did not go unnoticed by the local villagers, but the Bean Clan stayed in their cave by day and took their victims at night. The Bean Clan was so clandestine that the villagers were unaware of the murderers living nearby. But according to the story, they were eventually caught. And I think there's a couple of different versions. Let's see. The most common of the two is that the Bean Clan was captured alive. Where they gave up without a fight, they were taken in chains to the Tollbooth Jail in Edinburgh, then transferred to Leith or Glasgow, where they were promptly executed without trial as people saw them as subhuman and unfit for one. Sonny and his fellow men had their genitalia cut off and thrown into the fires, their hands and feet severed, and were allowed to bleed to death. With Sonny shouting his dying words, it isn't over. It will never be over. That's such like a movie thing. Um, after what I can picture that in like um, some horror movie. And after watching the men die, Agnes, her fellow women, and the children were tied to stakes and burned alive. These execution practices recall in essence, if not in detail, the punishments of hanging, drawing, and quartering decreed for men convicted of treason. In contrast, women convicted of the same were burned. There was another claim that the search party placed gunpowder at the entrance of their cave, where the Sawney Bean clan faced the fate of suffocation. And so, as it was implied earlier, the historicity of both Sawney Bean and the story as a whole are a matter of contention. The consensus seems to be that's largely a legend, but there could be some historical basis. Uh, but I'll read a bit more, why not? So let's see, sources and veracity. According to the Scotsman, there is a debate over the validity of the Sonny Bean tale. Some people believe that Sonny Bean was a real person, while others think he was just a mythical figure. Dorothy L. Sayers, I think it is, offered a gruesome account of the Sonny Bean tale in her anthology, Great Short Stories of Detection, Mystery, and Horror. It looks like that book was written or published in 1928. The book was a bestseller in Britain, reprinted seven times in the next five years. A 2005 article by Sean Thomas, whoever the hell that is, notes that historical documents, such as newspapers and diaries during the era in which Sonny Bean was supposedly active, make no mention of ongoing disappearances of hundreds of people. Additionally, Thomas notes inconsistencies in the stories, but speculates that kernels of truth might have inspired the legend. And so I think this is an excerpt or a quote from broadsheet to broadsheet, a broadsheet just being a type of newspaper, I believe. The precise dating of Sonny Bean's reign of anthropophagic terror, that made, why is that? That reminds me of those old Italian zombie movies. Wasn't there one of them that had a, a name like that? Anthropophagic terror uh, varies wildly. Um, sometimes the atrocities occurred during the reign of James VI, early 1600s, whilst other versions claim the Beans lived centuries before. Viewed in this light, it is arguable that the Bean story may have a basis in truth, but the precise dating of events has become obscured over the years. Perhaps the dating of the murders was brought forward by the editors and writer of the broadsheets so as to make the story appear more relevant to the readership. 
To add to the intrigue, we know that cannibalism was not unknown in medieval Scotland, and that Galloway was in medieval times a very lawless place. Perhaps nothing on the scale of the Bean legend took place, but every story grows and is embroidered over time. And so I think that's the end of that particular excerpt, but then it uh, continues. The Sawney Bean legend closely resembles the story of Christy Cleek, which is attested much earlier in the early 15th century. Christy Cleek is a mythical Scottish cannibal who lived during a famine in the mid-14th century. The legend of Sawney Bean first appeared in the British chapbooks, rumor magazines of the day. Today, many argue that the story was a political propaganda tool to denigrate the Scots after the Jacobite rebellions. Thomas disagrees, noting, If the Sonny Bean story is to be read as deliberately anti-Scottish, how do we explain the equal emphasis on English criminals in the same publications? Wouldn't such an approach rather blunt the point? Then it continues another cannibal story from Scotland, even more redolent of the Sonny Bean tale than the Christie Cleek's story, can be found in the in the 1696 work, my apologies, of Nathaniel Crouch, a compiler and popular history writer who published under the pseudonym Richard Burton. In this tale, the following happened in 1459, the year before James II of Scotland's death, about which time a certain thief who lived privately in a den with his wife and children were all burned alive, they having made it their practice for many years to kill young people and eat them. One girl only of a year old was saved and brought up at Dundee, who at twelve years of age, being found guilty of the same horrid crime, was condemned to the same punishment. And when the people followed her in great multitudes to execution, wondering at her unnatural villainy, she turned toward them and with a cruel countenance said, what do you thus rail at me, as if I had done such a heinous act, contrary to the nature of man? I tell you that if you did but know how pleasant the taste of man's flesh was, none of you all would forbear to eat it. And thus, with an impenitent and stubborn mind, she suffered deserved death. And then it references a medieval historian and philosopher, uh, Hector Boese, I think it is, um, notes that the infant daughter of a Scot brigand who was executed with his family for cannibalism, though raised by foster parents, developed the cannibal appetite at 12 and was put to death for it. This was summarized by George M. Gould and Walter Pyle in Anomalies and Curiosities of Medicine. And then as a horror fan, I found this pretty interesting. Uh, supposedly, the story of the Bean Clan was at least in part the inspiration for Wes Craven's film, The Hills Have Eyes. And I can totally see that. It seems like the template for that, you know, trope we see in all those horror movies where there's some inbred family of cannibalistic hillbillies. Uh, the Hills Have Eyes, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Actually, I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre was inspired, at least in part, by the story of Ed Gein. Uh, but then you have Wrong Turn and a bunch of other ones. But back to Fish and Chickatillo, this fall on CBS. Uh, but seriously, they were two of the most depraved killers that I think the world has ever known. And when you read the nature of their crimes, you almost feel like you need to take a shower to get the grime off of you. Just unspeakable depravity. And I'm not trying to make excuses for their monstrous behavior, there is no excusing it, 
But I do think it's interesting to note that both Fish and Chikatilo had absolutely horrific childhoods. And so I think their cases might serve as good examples of how quote-unquote nurture, you know, environmental factors or conditions, early childhood experiences, etc., might play a significant role in the making of a serial killer. As I think I've heard experts suggest, in most cases, it's probably a combination of nature and nurture. If you have someone who's perhaps genetically predisposed to psychopathy, and then on top of that, you subject them to a horrific childhood filled with trauma, abuse, and sadism, you just might end up with a monster. Whereas maybe on the other hand, if you have someone who is maybe wired for psychopathy or a lack of empathy or whatever, but they have a pretty normal, stable upbringing, who knows, maybe they end up working on Wall Street instead of strangling hookers. Uh, but then again, um, you know, there's people like Jeffrey Dahmer who, you know, have pretty normal childhoods, but nevertheless end up turning into serial killers. In a case like that, maybe it's just nature winning out over nurture. Who knows? But either way, I would imagine adding a horrific childhood to the mix probably doesn't help things. Uh, so I'll start with uh, Chikatilo's background, but before I do, I wanted to quickly mention, I don't know if author Thomas Harris has come out and said as much, but I wouldn't be surprised if Chikatilo's childhood was at least partly the inspiration for Hannibal Lecter's childhood, as depicted in both the book and movie versions of Hannibal Rising. And it's funny, I think Hannibal Rising was absolutely panned by critics, and I'm not sure audiences were crazy about it either. But I loved it, and I'm speaking about the movie version specifically. I don't think I read the book. Uh, actually, I may have listened to the audiobook version. I can't really remember. Um, but if I'm remembering correctly, I believe the people who held the movie rights to the uh, Hannibal Lecter character, I think it may have been uh, De Laurentiis or whatever it is, but they basically informed Thomas Harris, the creator of Hannibal Lecter, the author of the uh, Hannibal Lecter novels, that whether he was in or not, they were going to make an origin film about Hannibal Lecter. And Harris, probably so someone else, didn't bastardize the character he created, and maybe for the paycheck too, definitely wouldn't blame him, was like, okay, and he whipped up Hannibal Rising. Like most, I loved Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, so I was unsure if I'd be receptive to someone else playing the character. And the kid who plays Hannibal in the movie looks nothing like Anthony Hopkins, but I really liked the story, and I thought the kid was a good fit for the role. And I think the fact that he was playing a younger Hannibal made me a little less picky in a way. You can always tell yourself, oh, maybe he looked a little different when he was younger or whatever, you know. But the basic plot is that Hannibal was born into an aristocratic Lithuanian family, uh, loving parents, relatively privileged lifestyle. But because of World War II, the family is forced to flee to their hunting lodge in the woods. The parents die in an explosion, I think. And so it's just Hannibal, who is still pretty small himself, and his little sister. A group of Lithuanian militiamen, uh, Nazi collaborators, I believe, make themselves at home in the family's lodge where Hannibal and his sister are. 
And these guys are really kind of menacing and rough around the edges. It's really disturbing, but they basically kill and eat Hannibal's little sister. And he doesn't find out till later, but they fed her to him without telling him as well. And we're used to a very cold and calculating Lecter. But as a boy, he's actually a pretty good kid. You know Hannibal Lecter? Good kid. But <laughs> a good kid, a loving and protective brother. So you can imagine the effect this would have on him. And so this is supposed to be, you know, the formative moment that leads him to becoming a cannibalistic killer. Now, I think one problem some people had with Hannibal Rising is that they preferred letting Hannibal's origins, you know, remain a mystery. They felt like giving him a sympathetic origin story somehow took something away from the character. But me, I'm a sucker for, you know, a good revenge story. And so the rest of the movie is kind of Hannibal, you know, coming of age, becoming a young man, and beginning to systematically hunt down and kill the people who killed and ate his sister. And there's one scene I love near the end of the movie, spoiler alert, but Hannibal forms a pseudo-romantic relationship with his uncle's widow, this Japanese woman, I forget her name, and Hannibal finally tracks down what I think is the um, the last guy on his list, or maybe the second to last of his uh, sister's killers. And he's trying to, yeah, and I think he's trying to get the name of the final killer from him. But I think it's here that the guy tells him that he also, Hannibal that is, also unknowingly consumed his sister in the broth they fed him. And this revelation really pushes him over the edge. He starts carving his sister's initial, M for Misha, into the guy. And um, his aunt tries to stop him, but he chooses revenge, which I thought was the right choice, and starts basically eating the guy's face, I think. But Chikatilo, of course, wasn't some cool anti-hero. He was a child-killing monster, uh, a real-life one. But his early life does have or, or share some parallels with Lecter's uh, fictional childhood. So I'll read a bit here. Let's see. Once again, Wikipedia... Andrei Romanovich Chikatilo, um, let's see, yeah, was born 1936, uh, died 1994, was a Soviet serial killer, and I have to say, Chikatilo and, uh, and Albert Fish, as much as I despise them and their deeds, they did have some pretty cool nicknames. Uh, so Chikatilo was also known as the Butcher of Rostov and the Red Ripper, and the Rostov Ripper. But yeah, so it says he sexually assaulted, murdered, and mutilated at least 52 women and children between 1978 and 1990 in the Russian FSSR, the Ukrainian SSR, and the Uzbek SSR. A lot of Soviet alphabet soup there. But uh, Chikatilo confessed to 56 murders, 53 of which he was tried in April 1992. He was convicted and sentenced to death for 52 murders in October 1992, although the Supreme Court of Russia ruled in 1993 that insufficient evidence existed to prove his guilt in nine of those killings. Chikatilo was subsequently executed in February 1994. Chikatilo, and it's kind of repeating itself here, was known as the Rostov Ripper and the Butcher of Rostov because he committed most of his murders in the Rostov Oblast of the Russian SFS. Yeah, and so here's a bit about his early life, and it gets pretty disturbing. 
So Andre Chikatilo was born on the 16th of October, 1936, in the village of... I think I've been doing all right with uh, pronunciations, place names, etc. in this episode. But this one, I'm sure I'll butcher it. Yablankna? Yablankni? I have no idea. But a uh, small village, I guess, in the Sumy Oblast of the Ukrainian SSR. At the time of his birth... Ukraine was in the grip of a famine caused by Joseph Stalin's forced collectivization of agriculture. Chikatilo's parents were both collective farm laborers who lived in a one-room hut. They received no wages for their work, but instead received the right to cultivate a plot of land behind the family hut. The family seldom had sufficient food. Chikatilo himself later claimed not to have eaten bread until the age of 12, adding that he and his family often had to eat grass and leaves in an effort to stave off hunger. Throughout his childhood, Chikatilo was repeatedly told by his mother, Anna, that prior to his birth, an older brother of his named Stepan, I think it is, or Stepan, had at the age of four been kidnapped and cannibalized by starving neighbors, although it has never been established whether this incident actually occurred or if a Stepan Chikatilo even existed, Nonetheless, Chikatilo recalled his childhood as being blighted by poverty, ridicule, hunger, and war. When the Soviet Union entered the Second World War, Chikatilo's father, Roman, was conscripted into the Red Army. He would later be taken prisoner after being wounded in combat. Between 1941 and 1944, Chikatilo witnessed some of the effects of the Nazi occupation of Ukraine, which he described as quote-unquote horrors, adding he witnessed bombings, fires, and shootings from which he and his mother would hide in cellars and ditches. On one occasion, Chikatilo and his mother were forced to watch their own hut burn to the ground. With his father at war, Chikatilo and his mother shared a single bed. He was a chronic bedwetter and his mother berated and beat him for each offense. And I think I've heard on numerous occasions watching true crime documentaries and stuff that for some reason there's a link between, you know, serial killers and bedwetting as children or uh, bedwetting and psychopathy. Um, not quite sure why that is. Um, in 1943, Chikatilo's mother gave birth to a baby girl, Tatiana, because Chikatilo's father had been conscripted in 1941. He could not have fathered this child. As many Ukrainian women were raped by German soldiers during the war, it has been speculated that Tatiana was conceived as a result of a rape committed by a German soldier. As Chikatilo and his mother lived in a one-room hut, this rape may have been committed in Chikatilo's presence. So you see what I mean? Just an absolutely horrific uh, childhood. And once again, it doesn't excuse his monstrous deeds. But, it, you know, looking back, it kind of makes sense. You're like, what the hell would make this kind of monster? Then you kind of look at his childhood and it's kind of like, oh. I'm sure there are plenty of other people or families who underwent similar suffering and misery during the war and during the reign of Stalin. And, you know, they didn't turn into cannibalistic serial killers. But obviously this stuff must have had something to do with how Chikatilo became what he became. 
And so I don't want to read the entire Wikipedia page on Chikatilo, but basically as he got older, old enough to take interest in girls, it was revealed that he was painfully shy around the opposite sex, and that he seemed from a relatively young age to be incapable of achieving or maintaining an erection. And unfortunately, I don't think they had sildenafil yet. But uh, anyway, you know, who knows? It's always possible that there could have been a physiological cause for his uh, impotence. But if I was to play armchair psychologist, my guess would be that you have someone who spent their formative years stuck in a one-room hut with their mother, you know, in the same bed, and whose mother may have been raped in their presence, um, and the mother also ber berating him for the bedwetting and everything, it kind of may makes sense that he may have developed some deep-seated issues regarding sex and relating to women. And his crimes were absolutely brutal. He would often make failed attempts to sexually assault his victims, and then would end up cutting them with a knife, partially eviscerating them, tearing pieces of their flesh away with his teeth, gouging out eyes, etc. I actually remember one of the things that stuck with me from that true crime show I had watched back in the day is that apparently he confessed that he liked to nibble on the uteruses of his victims and describe them as being nice and pink and springy and, uh, you know, describing how he would just throw them away or discard them when he was done nibbling on them. Yeah, this is probably the darkest episode I've ever done. We're really venturing into true crime territory. And I mentioned how I myself, I get kind of like disturbed and depressed by watching true crime stuff. And here I am turning around and inflicting it on my audience. Uh, but I guess journey we mourn to the nightmare. So many of his victims were women. But he also had adolescent victims, some of them as young as 12, including both girls and boys. He had actually been a teacher, and his initial crimes were basically him perving on his students. Unwanted touching, groping, that kind of thing. And then eventually it escalated to murder. He abandoned his career as a teacher after multiple complaints of inappropriate touching, sexual assault, etc. And ended up taking on some kind of mundane job that required him to travel. And he planned his crimes around his travel schedule. Here's a bit from a psychological profile that was written up while he was still at large. The police had consulted a psychiatrist by the name of Alexander Bukhanovsky, I think, or Bukhanovsky. And so, yeah, it was a 65-page psychological profile, and it described the killer as a reclusive man, aged between 45 and 50 years old, who had endured a painful and isolated childhood, and who was incapable of flirting or courtship with women. This individual was well-educated, likely to be married, and to have fathered children. And so, I should mention that I think he did have at least one child, and I think it was his sister and uh, her husband who had helped uh, find him a wife. And um, Chikatilo wasn't able to consummate the marriage, so to speak. But, and I don't know if I should say it, it gets pretty graphic and crude, but his wife suggested that he basically masturbate and that uh, <clears throat> he would use his fingers and uh, instead of a turkey baster, use your imagination. Uh, man, th this episode. But anyway, so 
The profile also suggested that the killer was a sadist who suffered from impotence and could achieve sexual arousal only by seeing his victim suffer. The murders themselves were an analog to the sexual intercourse this individual was incapable of performing, and his knife became a substitute for her penis, which failed to function normally. Because many of the killings had occurred on weekdays near mass transport hubs and across the entire Rostov Oblast, Bukhanovsky, or however it's pronounced, also argued that the killer's work required him to travel regularly, and based upon the actual days of the week when the killings had occurred, the killer was most likely tied to a production schedule. I could probably spend another hour going over Chikatilo's story, not that I'd want to, but that's probably how long it would take, at least. So to bring his story to a close, he was eventually caught. Uh, following the rejection of his appeal to the Supreme Court, Chikatilo filed a final appeal for clemency with President Boris Yeltsin. Uh, this final appeal was rejected on the 4th of January, 1994. On the uh, 14th of February, Valentine's Day, uh, 1994, Chikatilo was taken from his death row cell to a soundproofed room in Nova Cherkask prison and executed with a single gunshot behind the right ear. He was buried in an unmarked grave at the prison cemetery. Seems about right. I know that might sound cold. Do we at least feel bad for the young boy that uh, Chikatilo once was? I think so. Um... It's horrible what that boy had to endure, and uh, maybe if he had been handed a better, you know, deck of cards or a better hand, so to speak, he might not have turned into the monster he became. But once that boy became a man and started to assault and savage and uh, kill and take apart and consume other living human beings, uh, that's when the sympathy ends, right? Obviously, are we on the same page? I mean, I suppose we could always have a philosophical conversation about free will. You know, after everything that happened to him, the forces that shaped him combined with his, you know, um, genetic wiring, I guess. You know, could he have become anything else? Could he have made any other choices? Um, was he just too damaged to make the right choices by that point? I mean... I don't know. But either way, even if you wanted to be that charitable or whatever, uh, or get that philosophical about it, end of the day, guy still has to be removed from society, at least. Whether or not the state should have the right to put him to death, uh, you know, that's a, a different conversation. So the good news is, Chikatilo's now in our rearview mirror. The bad news is, we still have to cover Albert Fish, and he might actually be worse than Chikatilo. And I'll just go on the record and say it. Yeah, I think Fish is definitely worse than Chikatilo. And I base that on the very young age of at least one of his victims. And it's that case that I'm thinking of um, that really disturbed me back in the day when I was watching that true crime show and first learned about Albert Fish. Um, yeah, I still, uh, I don't even know how to explain it. Um, but when I think about what he did to this particular kid, this child, um, I want, I get pissed. I want to like jump in a time machine, go back to, you know, whenever and, and kick the living shit out of Albert Fish. 
but for better or worse, we will eventually get to that story, but I'll start by reading uh, a bit from, you guessed it, Wikipedia. So, Hamilton Howard, in quotes, Albert Fish, um, let's see, he was born May 19th, 1870, uh, died January 16th, 1936, was an American serial killer, child rapist, and cannibal. Uh, he was all, and like I said, these guys, despite how awful and wretched they are, um, they, they had some cool nicknames. Like, what, what was it? Chikatilo was the, uh, the Red Ripper or whatever. So, Fish was also known as the Gray Man, the Werewolf of Wisteria, and the Brooklyn Vampire. Uh, isn't that Eddie Murphy? Anyway, uh, yeah, he was also known as the Moon Maniac and the Boogeyman. Um, that last one wasn't really that creative. But uh, Fish once boasted that he, in Herod's and quotes, had children in every state, and at one time stated his number of victims was about 100. However, it is not known whether he was referring to rapes or cannibalization, nor is it known if the statement was truthful. Fish was a suspect in at least five murders during his lifetime. He confessed to three murders that police were able to trace to a known homicide, and he confessed to stabbing at least two other people. Fish was apprehended on December 13, 1934, and put on trial for the kidnapping and murder of Grace Budd, and that's actually the case I was referring to. He was convicted and executed by electric chair on January 16, 1936, at the age of 65. His crimes were dramatized in the 2007 film The Gray Man, starring Patrick, is it Bouchot or something like that? Uh, I think it's French, as Fish. I didn't even know that movie existed. I've never seen it. It's one of those things that, despite the fact that I like horror movies, I'm not sure if this one would just kind of depress me and gross me out. Maybe I'll watch it. I'm not sure. And it might be more of a psychological thriller than a horror movie, but same thing still applies anyway. So yeah, I mentioned that both uh, Chikatilo and Fish had, you know, horrific childhood. So I'll read a bit about Fish's. Albert Fish was born in Washington, D.C. on May 19, 1870. Uh, who, who cares whose parents were, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Fish's father was an American of English ancestry, and his mother was of Scots-Irish-American. Um, his father was 43 years old. Oh, his, this, yeah, this kind of is interesting. His father was 43 years older than his mother, and uh, so... 75 years old at the time of uh, Fish's birth. Fish was the youngest child and had three living siblings, Walter, Annie, and Edwin. He wished to be known as Albert after a dead sibling and to escape the nickname Ham and Eggs that he was given at an orphanage in which he spent much of his childhood. And so I remember when I was first reading this, that really kind of caught my attention, just that little thing that he wanted to be known by the name of a dead sibling. And I was my first assumption was is that he felt some kind of tenderness or sentimentality towards that dead sibling. So to honor them, he wanted to, you know, um, assume their name. And I was thinking how kind of incongruous that is with... Um, the seeming character of the adult fish and what an absolute monster, uh, you know, he had become. But yeah, that's interesting though, that it seems like there was some kind of, uh, 
inkling of humanity there. Um, but anyway, so Fish's family had a history of mental illness. His uncle suffered from mania. One of his brothers was confined in a state mental hospital. And his sister Annie was diagnosed with a quote-unquote mental affliction. Three other relatives were diagnosed with mental illnesses. And his mother had oral, not O-R-A-L, but oral as an aura, and or visual hallucinations. And it just dawned on me, it's probably just a coincidence because uh, the name Annie is so common, but um, Fish had a sister named Annie and an attack on Titan, one of the main or recurring characters, is named Annie. It's not implausible seeing as there's that little uh, Chikatilo and Fish Easter egg, you know, in the show, but um, I have no evidence or whatever that that's where the name Annie came from. I, I, I like the Annie character, so I prefer it doesn't have anything to do with Albert Fish. Uh, I, I'm just uh, thinking out loud. Who knows? But continues, Fish's father, Randall, was a riverboat captain and by 1870 a fertilizer manufacturer. The elder Fish died in 1875 at Washington 6th Street Station of a heart attack. The Congressional Cemetery records show that he died on October 16th, 1875, and was buried... Why do I care about this shit anyway? Fish's mother then put her son into St. John's Orphanage in Washington, where he was frequently abused. Fish began to enjoy the physical pain that the beatings brought. Of his time at the orphanage, Fish remarked, I was there till I was nearly nine, and that's where I got started wrong. We were unmercifully whipped. I saw boys doing many things they should not have done. By 1880, Fish's mother had a government job and was able to remove Fish from the orphanage. In 1882, at age 12, he began a homosexual relationship with a telegraph boy. The youth introduced Fish to such practices as urolagnia, uh, drinking urine, and I, yeah, I've never heard that one anyway, uh, coprophagia, I totally believe that there's people out there doing it, I just never heard the uh, technical term for it, yeah, and coprophagia, eating feces, Fish began visiting public baths where he could watch other boys undress and spent a great portion of his weekends on these visits. Throughout his life, he would write obscene letters to women whose names he acquired from classified advertising and matrimonial agencies. Let's see. So it goes into his early adulthood. By 1890, at age 20, Fish arrived in New York City. And he said at that point he became a prostitute and began, Jesus, man, and began raping young boys. In 1898, his mother arranged a marriage for him with Anna Mary Hoffman, who was nine years his junior. They had six children. Jeez, man. And one of them was named Albert. Imagine being, you know, having to deal with that. No, I'm not that Albert Fish. That was just my dad. Uh, geez, but so throughout, I gotta try to inject some levity here. This stuff is so heavy. Throughout 1898, Fish worked as a house painter. He said he continued, ugh, I feel like dirty, like just reading this crap. He said he continued molesting children, mostly boys younger than age six. He later recounted an incident in which a male lover took him to a waxworks museum where Fish was fascinated by a bisection of a penis. After that, he became obsessed with sexual mutilation. In 1903, he was arrested for grand larceny, convicted and incarcerated in Sing Sing. 
And if I sound genuinely surprised by some of this stuff, I have to admit I did jump around a little when I was researching this, so some of this is hitting me for the first time too. And it just keeps getting just more and more crazy and depraved. Around 1910, while he was working in Wilmington, Delaware, Fish met a 19-year-old man named Thomas Kedden. He took Kedden to where he was staying, and the two began a sadomasochistic relationship. It is unclear whether or not Fish forced Kedden to do these things, but in his confession, he implies that the man was intellectually disabled. After 10 days, Fish took Kedden to a quote-unquote an old farmhouse, where he began to torture him. The torture took place over two weeks. Fish eventually tied Kedden up and cut off half of his penis. And then Heron quotes, I shall never forget his scream or the look he gave me. Fish later recalled, he originally intended to kill Kedden, cut up his body and take it home, but he feared the hot weather would draw attention to him. Instead, Fish poured peroxide over the wound, wrapped it in a Vaseline-covered handkerchief, left a $10 bill, kissed Kedden goodbye, and left. And here in quotes, took first train I could get back home, never heard what became of him, or tried to find out, Fish said. Keep that story in mind next time you're using a uh, dating app. Anyway, so in January 1917, Fish's wife left him for John Straub. I don't know who John Straub is, but he, it's, it's got to be a step up. He can't be any worse than Fish. A handyman who boarded with the Fish family. Fish then had to raise his children as a single parent. Now, th there's a sitcom premise. After his arrest, Fish told a newspaper that when his wife left him, she took nearly every possession the family owned. He began to have auditory hallucinations. He once wrapped himself in a carpet, saying that he was following the instructions of John the Apostle. Oh, and I remember reading this part before, and this is pretty wild. It was about this time that Fish began to indulge in self-harm. He would embed needles into his groin and abdomen. After his arrest, x-rays revealed that Fish had at least 29 needles lodged in his pelvic region. He also hit himself repeatedly with a nail-studded paddle, an inserted wool doused with lighter fluid into his anus and set it alight. But before you judge, you got to remember, they didn't have the internet back then. So, you know, what else are you going to do for entertainment? Well, Fish was never thought to have physically attacked or abused his children. He did encourage them and their friends to paddle his buttocks with the same nail-studded paddle he used to abuse himself. He soon developed a growing obsession with cannibalism, often preparing himself a dinner consisting solely of raw meat and sometimes serving it to his children. Salmonella, anyone? With a side of E. coli? Uh, anyway, so, let's see. Escalation. Oh, this should be good. In about 1919, Fish stabbed an intellectually disabled boy in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. He chose people who were either mentally handicapped or African-American as his victims, explaining that he assumed these people would not be missed when killed. Fish would later claim to have occasionally paid boys to procure other children for him. Fish tortured, mutilated, and murdered young children with his quote-unquote implements of hell, a meat cleaver, a butcher knife, and a small handsaw. And so that phrase, implements of hell, that has stuck with me ever since I watched that um, true crime show about 
Albert Fish, um, narrated by Bill Curtis, whatever it was. Uh, I remember, I remember, uh, yeah, the name of the girl who he killed, you know, that case that really stuck with me. Her name was Grace Budd. And I remember them saying in the show that he killed her with his so-called implements of hell. And that never left me. Um, it was awful. And I didn't realize how many young kids he killed. Um, I knew he was a serial killer. And I knew um, the horrific story about what he did to Grace Bud. But I didn't know there were so many other um, really young victims. And so, you know, you're reading about all these horrible things that happen to kids and it's in the past so there's nothing you can do about it but there's a couple of stories here where the kids get away and it's kind of like you get a sigh of relief or some feeling of uh you know take that prick um so yeah, let's see uh, on july 11th 1924 fish found eight-year-old beatrice keel or kyle playing alone on her parents' farm on Staten Island, New York. He offered her money to come and help him look for rhubarb. That seems like something that would happen in the 1920s. You don't, you don't hear that one anymore, really. Hey, come, come help me look for rhubarb, would you? I don't think... I like to think of myself as a fairly intelligent person, but not only have I never eaten rhubarb, I don't even think I know what rhubarb looks like. I just looked it up. It kind of looks like lettuce on a stick. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, he offered her money to come and help him look for rhubarb. She was about to leave the farm when her mother chased Fish away. Good for you, Mom. Fish left, but returned later to the uh, Keels, or I don't know how it's pronounced, K-I-E-L-S, to their barn where he tried to sleep but was discovered by Beatrice's father and forced to leave. Too bad he didn't, like, curb stomp him. Anyway, uh, three days later, Fish killed Francis McDonald or McDonnell, also on Staten Island. It doesn't say how um, how old she is or anything. And so I just noticed that the name Francis McDonnell, you could click on it, and I thought maybe it was going to take me to a different Wikipedia page, but it took me to another section within the Albert Fish page where it goes into more detail about Francis McDonnell. And so according to this, Francis McDonnell was a nine-year-old boy who had been reported missing by his parents after he failed to return home from playing catch with his friends. And uh, he was found hanging from a tree. He had been strangled with his own suspenders. Um, he had been assaulted both uh, physically and otherwise, um, covered with uh, lacerations. And it's so morbid. Most of um, the tissue or flesh was missing from one of his hamstrings. Uh, apparently, Fish um, claimed that he was actually planning on castrating the boy, but fled when he heard someone approaching the area. And it says, also during 1924, the 54-year-old Fish, suffering from psychosis, felt that God was commanding him to torture and sexually mutilate children. It's weird. I feel awful reading this stuff. I wonder what the people who, you know, typed up the Wikipedia article or who have to, you know, whatever, write articles about this, like how they feel. And it kind of makes me wonder, you know, who's writing these articles, you know? But I don't know. It could be um, forensics experts or people who are really into criminology or true crime or whatever. 
and I don't mean to, you know, cast dispersions at them or, you know, imply anything about them because I think they really are doing a service. Even if it's a disturbing topic, it's good to have these really informative encyclopedia-like entries about whatever the subject is, just as part of our collective repository, you know? And it, it is good to have these kind of, um, what's the word? I guess criminal profiles or detailed, you know, cases on record. Maybe they come in handy for, you know, profilers, criminologists, uh, forensic psychiatrists or whatever. And as disturbing as the stuff is, it's still part of our collective history or whatever, you know? But I just wondered, you know, like, psychologically, what's it like for the person writing or typing this stuff? You know, just because it's so morbid and depraved and uh, debased, sordid, what, what, you know, depressing, whatever the uh, adjectives are. But like I was saying, there's another story that offers, like, a brief respite or, you know, a fleeting bit of catharsis where the... Uh, the children or the child escapes. Um, so it says, Shortly before his abduction of Grace Bud, Fish attempted to test his quote-unquote implements of hell on a child... And here's where it gets uh, rough again. A child he had been... Um, I hate even saying this crap. Maybe I'll just say diddling. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, named Cyril Quinn. Quinn and his friend were playing box ball on a sidewalk when Fish asked them if they had eaten lunch. When they said that they had not, he, and this is why, you know, your parents tell you to, uh, to, to be wary of strangers. When they said they had not, he invited them into his apartment for sandwiches. While the two boys were wrestling on Fish's bed, they dislodged his mattress. Underneath was a knife, a small handsaw, and a meat cleaver. They became frightened and ran out of the apartment. I wonder if those kids ever learned just how lucky they were, like if they found out after the fact, maybe, you know, when um, Fish was arrested or whatever. Holy crap. But uh, on to uh, the Grace Bud case. And so the only reason why I even remember who Albert Fish was is because I heard about the story of Grace Bud on that. Uh, I think it was, was it Investigative Reports with um, Bill Curtis? Whatever the name of the show was. And the story disturbed me and en enraged me so much that um, it was just etched into my mind. And so I'll read from this section here pertaining to the uh, murder of Grace Budd. On May 25, 1928, Fish saw a classified advertisement in the Sunday edition of the New York World that read, Young man, 18, wishes position and country. Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. I feel weird reading that, like I'm, like I'm doxing someone from uh, more than half a century ago. Anyway, on May 28th, Fish, then 58 years old, visited the Bud family in Manhattan under the pretense of hiring Edward. He later confessed that he planned to tie Edward up, mutilate him, and leave him to bleed to death. Fish introduced himself as Frank Howard, a farmer from Farmingdale, that's creative, New York. He promised to hire Bud and his friend, Willie. And I think if I'm not mistaken, Bud is actually Grace's older brother. But anyway, so 
He promised to hire Bud and his friend Willie and said he would send for them in a few days. Fish failed to show up, but he sent a telegram to the Bud family apologizing and set a later date. When Fish returned, he met Edward's younger sister, Grace Bud. He apparently changed his intended victim from Edward to Grace and quickly made up a story about having to attend his niece's birthday party. And I can remember watching that episode and when they were talking about this, it was almost like that thing, you know, when you're watching a horror movie and you wish you could yell to the character, don't go down the basement or whatever, you know, except this was real and someone's child died because the parents weren't cautious enough. I'm not trying to blame the murder on the parents, um, but if they had just been a little more cautious, you know, and maybe it was a different time and people thought it was safer to let your kid go off with strangers, but apparently not, you know. Um, I mean, Fish is the real monster here, but I can't help but to uh, feel frustrated with the parents, even though this is an event that's, you know, decades and decades in the past now. But still, so yeah, he convinced the parents, Delia, Flanagan, and Albert Budd I, to let Grace accompany him to the party that evening. The elder uh, Albert Budd was a porter for the United States Equitable Life Assur Assurance, Life Assurance Society. Grace had a younger sister, Beatrice, two older brothers, Edward and George, and a younger brother, Albert Budd II, Grace left with Fish that day, but never returned. The police arrested 66-year-old Superintendent Charles Edward Pope on September 5, 1930, as a suspect in Grace's disappearance. Accused by Pope's estranged wife, he spent 108 days in jail between his arrest and trial on December 22, 1930. He was found not guilty. And so this is the most disturbing part of all this. The break in the case came when Fish sent an anonymous letter to Grace's mother. And um, it was so detailed that it led the police back to Fish. But it's, it really is like something out of a movie. I mean, Hannibal Lecter, even though he's a fictional character, to his credit, he wasn't a child killer. You know, but the kind of malicious intelligence with which the letter is written kind of makes me think of like a Hannibal Lecter or some other diabolical killer from a from a movie you know writing taunting but well-worded notes carefully crafted off to the police or their victims families or something like that and so once again you know this wasn't a movie this was real life and because I loathe Fish so much, I hate giving him credit, but judging by the letter, you know, it, he comes off as quite intelligent and literate and well-spoken or having crafted a letter that is well-worded, very well-worded, which makes the note and the information it conveys, you know, that much more horrible. And I was, my assumption was always that sending the letter was meant to be a sadistic gesture, um, that he wanted to reel the mother in with his long meandering letter while gradually revealing to her 
the full horror of his crime and in gruesome detail letting her know how horrible her daughter's final moments had been. But after reading more about Albert Fish and taking into consideration things like the um, religious delusions, the hallucinations, uh, rolling himself up in a carpet and, you know, yammering on about John the Apostle, um, I wondered if, I mean, part of me was wondering, well, did he really know how sadistic he was being? Uh, was he just so zoned out and, you know, mentally off that he thought he was just sending correspondence, correspondence to let the mother know what happened to her kid? But no, I mean, when you look at the nature of his crimes, uh, how, how well worded uh, the letter was, how it really did seem, the letter seems to be dripping with sadistic joy, like he was savoring, you know, that's why the letter was so long. He was savoring the pain he would be inflicting on the mother with the letter. Um, so no matter how crazy he may have been, his auditory hallucinations, whatever they were, um, he's still at the end of the day was a sadomasochist, uh, and he enjoyed inflicting pain on others. And I won't read the letter in its entirety for two reasons. One, because some of it is just so graphic and despicable. And the other reason, simply because it's too damn long. But I'll skip around and read some of it. So it starts with, My dear Mrs... And this is another thing. I guess Grace's mother was illiterate, so her son had to read it to her. And, uh, yeah, so it starts, My dear Mrs. Budd, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. And um, it's, I don't think it's ever been verified that Fish actually had a, a friend by the name of John Davis um, who had sailed on the Tacoma and all that. But anyway... They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At the time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from a dollar to three dollars a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under twelve were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go into any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. I think I may have, uh, you can go in any shop. All right, yeah. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body, and sold as veal cutlet, brought the highest price. John stayed there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven, took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, and then burned everything they had. And so he goes on in this way, almost as if, like I was saying, like he's trying to make the mother's realization of what happened to her child kind of really kind of slowly and horribly, you know, wash over her and, and sink in. 
And so, like I already um, touched on, I don't think it's ever been verified whether or not there really was a Captain John Davis, or if he, you know, really acquired a taste for human flesh while in China, and then became, you know, came home and became an active cannibal here. It's not impossible. There really was widespread famine and even widespread reports of cannibalism during the Great Leap Forward and all that. But you can't help but still feel like it's a little outlandish, like the sailor came home and was um, cannibalizing children. But then again, Albert Fish actually was cannibalizing uh, children. So, And he goes into detail about how this sailor friend of his, in graphic detail about how he cut up and prepared the bodies, etc., and so he's building a narrative here, slowly revealing, you know, what he did to her child. And so he shifts the focus from his sailor friend to himself. And he says, at the time I was living at 409 East 100th Street. So I just doxed Albert Fish, but hey, he deserves it. And uh, rare right side. Well, it's specific. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch, so you see what he's doing here. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her on the pretense of taking her to a party. You said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester. And so he specifies that it was a, an empty house he had already picked out. And he goes on to say, when we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wild flowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. And I remember, um... Yeah, this is a part that really chilled me, you know, when I first watched that episode. Because just the idea of this little girl all of a sudden realizing she's not at home anymore, she's not with her parents, and all of a sudden there's this naked old man in front of her, uh, how terrified she must have been. Yeah, it says, when all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run down the stairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I, yeah, he stripped her, um, went on to say, you know, how she kicked and bit. Um, he goes on to say that he choked her to death, goes on to say, how he cut her up, how in detail he uh, prepared the different parts of her body. And almost like he deserves credit for his restraint, he lets the mother know in a very vulgar way that he could have had sex with her, but he didn't. And ends the letter with, she died a virgin. So Albert Fish, possibly the biggest piece of shit in the universe, and if any good comes out of this, hopefully at least it'll be a reminder to parents that there really are human monsters out there in the world that you need to protect your children from. Don't let your little kids go off with uh, strange old men. Holy shit, man.
You know, I decided to do this episode. I was hoping it would be relatively short and it would have appeal not only to my regular listeners, but to maybe a Attack on Titan fans and, and whatnot. But like most of my content recently, this has been so long-winded. I don't know if a, you know, Attack on Titan fan who doesn't know me from Adam is going to, you know, watch this for... I might take the Attack on Titan part and make it its own separate episode where I talk about, you know, um, the relationship between Attack on Titan and uh, Fish and Chikatilo. But that's still probably going to be at least an hour long. And I don't know if uh, an anime fan who doesn't know anything about this show is going to have the patience for that. We'll see what happens. But... Whew, Man, am I tired. Yeah, I've even though this is unscripted, I've been recording it sporadically, and I just had my uh, second COVID shot, so I've been feeling like I have the flu. And then on top of it, I just had a, uh, a crown, a dental crown done. So I'm just glad this episode is finally over. As always, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time. And I hope I didn't uh, traumatize you too much with this one.